Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. I'm excited to say we have a very special episode today. For today's show, we're going to be speaking to veteran Supreme Court journalist Joan Biskupic about her new book, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Biskupic is CNN's senior Supreme Court analyst and has written five books about the Supreme Court, which she's covered for 25 years. Her latest, Nine Black Robes, features exclusive insights into the justices' chambers for some of the most controversial cases from the Trump presidency to the present. Welcome to the show, Joan. It's great to have you. Thanks, Jimmy. Hello to you and Natalie. Let me just get started with a, with a question that was kind of interesting to me, which is your previous books on the Supreme Court have focused on individual justices and their lives and careers. Um, why was it important in this book for you to kind of step back and report on the court as a whole? Thanks, Jimmy. There was no single justice uh, back in 2019 when I finished The Chief and going into 2020, who I wanted to pursue, but yet I felt like there was something really important happening. So I thought what might be good is to pull back and do a group portrait of sorts during this very historic time. Donald Trump was in office. I could tell that things were changing behind the scenes. I knew that there were individual players I would I wanted to focus on, but not one single person. So I thought it would be good sort of in part because of Donald Trump's presidency and how I saw the Roberts court evolving to look at them as a whole. And one other thing, if, if I could just add, when I actually pitched this proposal, it was early in 2020, it was right before COVID. And I thought my main tale was going to be what goes on behind the scenes for a lot of basically B-grade cases, but to bring readers into the closed chambers to see how they cut deals, navigate with each other, uh, you know, who's up, who's down, that sort of thing. I had no idea that the out front story would become so dramatic. And the book ended up being sort of a narration of how we ended up with the Dobbs ruling. I was taken quite a bit by just the level of detail that you had in this book and, and kind of like how well you you painted the portrait of kind of this frankly, raucous time for the court. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the writing and reporting process for this book might have differed from some of your earlier books? Thanks, Natalie. It was different. When I first started writing biographies on the justices, uh, beginning with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in 2005, then Antonin Scalia in 2009, and then a political history of Sonia Sotomayor in 2014, I was very much focused on people's personal stories. But in the Sotomayor book, I had a couple scoops about what went on behind the scenes, most notably how votes shifted in the University of Texas at Austin affirmative action case. And then for the chief one, I was able to get inside on his double switched votes in uh, the Obamacare case and bring out things that people had not been previously reported in full uh, with his, as I said, multiple, multiple vote changes. And that gave me a new interest in getting behind the scenes more so than I had for the first. So what you've observed in this one, I think, is my effort to recreate what went on in several key cases behind the scenes when either votes shifted 
or there were uh, especially dramatic moments behind the scenes that would make a difference in the law, and also how the justices themselves were um, shifting their own relationships as new new justices came on, and uh, the dynamic changed inside for who was in control and who was feeling, you know, on the outs and couldn't could no longer get any kind of compromise. So as as Jimmy knows, I've been, you know, I go up to the oral arguments, all of them. I'm at the, I'm at the court a lot. Um, during COVID, I had to keep in touch with people, you know, away from the court by phone and and other ways to keep trying to get as much information as possible. But I'm always trying to keep up access to a number of justices, uh, to people in the Supreme Court orbit, whether they be law clerks, mostly former law clerks, and uh, appellate lawyers who are very much wired into the justices. It sounds like you, you the breadth of your reporting for this book was pretty expansive. Um, h- how many interviews would you say you conducted? Oh, easily more than 100. But I go back to a lot of people many times. Uh, I, I think early in my reporting career, I thought you go talk to somebody and then you use that information and you work on a story. But I have found that you really need to cultivate relationships with people over time and go back and check and recheck and try to flesh out things. Uh, a couple, on a couple episodes that are detailed in this book, Natalie, I would get part of a story from one justice or someone deeply familiar with the tale from inside the court. And then I'd have to go to another person to try to get more. And then as I got more, I would go back to the original justice to say, well, I just learned this. Do you think this is right? Because one thing I want to say from the outset, when you're dealing with only nine individuals, your opportunity to double check, triple check, flesh out things is so much smaller than if you're dealing with Congress or all sorts of people who congregated in the White House. So you have to um, you have to really cultivate people and then be dependent on you know, the memories of folks, the accuracy of people. And as you can tell from the book, a lot of times I have to just deal with my sources on background, not name who's giving me this information, because of course, justices don't like to talk on the record, although I can get some of them on the record. So you you have to be, um, you have to have your guard up to make sure that you're not being used, that you're getting uh, the most accurate information. And also being aware of the fact that sometimes People's memories, you know, don't always don't always recall things exactly as they were. So I have to do a lot of double checking. And in fact, you spoke with the majority of the justices who served during the the time period chronicled in your book, right? I did. I did. I, um, you know, the book essentially starts with the the death of Justice Scalia, and I I don't really count him as one of my majority because, of course, he had passed away. But I have to say, Justice Scalia gave me so much access during the years that he was alive. Uh, When I wrote that biography of him that was published in 2009, he gave me 12 very extensive on-the-record interviews. And then Justice Scalia kept meeting with me. And I was in touch with him right up until his final weeks, frankly. It was just, I, I had an episode with him in early uh, it was either late 2015, early 2016, where he needed from me uh, some naturalization records that I had obtained about his father. He w- he needed them for one of his grandchildren who was about to take a trip to 
to Italy, I believe. And he wanted me to run down the the naturalization papers, which I had, you know, stuffed in boxes below my ping pong table in the basement, you know, the from the Scalia years. And I uh, I had a messenger run the document over to the court. And I, I'll never forget this. He said, oh, thanks, Joan. I owe you. And, you know, he was I had a nice, nice relationship with him, as I say, even after the book came out. So it was, um, you know, I was shocked as much as anybody was on that February 13th, 2016, when we all found out that he had passed away. That's interesting. So I, I think, you know, I guess that fall is when uh, President Donald Trump wins the 2016 election. And I think over the next four years, a lot of court watchers saw the Supreme Court's kind of discomfort with, you know, uh, dealing with the various uh, forms of Trump litigation that would come up to the court and how, you know, the figure of Donald Trump himself kind of rankled the court as an institution. But your reporting goes further and even reveals almost secret pacts between the justices to avoid the appearance of partisanship at this kind of troubling time for the court. Can you tell us more about that and why to some justices, in, in as you write in the book, that breached the integrity of the bench? You know, that's a smart observation of yours because, uh, you know, in that chapter, I think it's the third one in, uh, that opens with some comments of the chief justice about working with his colleagues, you know, his, his line about nobody on that court is like anybody else on that court as he, as he struggles with them. And certainly the chief has been at the center of some of the most crucial deals that have been uh, worked over the years. Now the justices just totally dislike any suggestion that they deal, that they make deals or that they engage in anything that could even be like horse trading. And it's, it's not quite, Horse trading. I don't. I, I I avoid that word. But they certainly make you know private packs with each other that that serve them uh, as they negotiate a case, and you know that's what happened in 2012 on the Affordable Care Act, and uh, in 2013 on the University of Texas at Austin affirmative action dispute. But what happened when Donald Trump came in is enough of them felt how polarized things were becoming. In the external world and within their with, within their their chambers, because all three of President Trump's appointees, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, were carefully screened by political operatives on the outside, and everybody knew that, and that produced you know certain narratives, competing narratives from both sides that played out in the confirmation process, certainly, but then extended to the interior world of the court. And one thing I found is that, you know, the justices themselves really don't want to be seen as making political deals. But I felt like the book kind of explored the paradox that some internal deals were made precisely to avoid a look of, you know, conservatives versus liberals, um, the Republican appointees versus the Democratic appointees, and, and certainly the chief justice was you know a leader in that regard, and the the liberal justices, when there were four of them, uh, it could be quite effective to try to get him to move a bit bit to the left. So and to say, look, if if we can find compromise here, we will not be reinforcing the narrative that's out there in the public that we are as politically divided as everyone else in Washington. So. Um, you know, I would say the chief was someone who was very much open to trying to find compromises that would help the court look less political. But 
Justice Samuel Alito, for one, and and Clarence Thomas, too. They they really felt like you know we those are external factors that should not play any kind of part in our decision making. You know, can I add something about Clarence Thomas? Always. Yes. Okay. You know, I I was aware even before uh, we got to spring of 2022 of how uh, how much he bristled at the caginess of Chief Justice John Roberts. But then right after the, the, the leak of the Dobbs opinion happened and Justice Thomas made some public remarks, I think that it was uh, an appearance in, in Dallas, and he referred to the court before 2005, before John Roberts became chief. And he talked about how, you know, we got along much better. We were a dysfunctional family, he said, but at least we were family. And someone at that appearance mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, the iconic liberal. And he said, I actually got along really well with Ruth. I always knew where she stood. And that line just jumped out at me because I knew it reflected the fact that he liked it when the justices put their cards on the table and you knew where individuals were coming from, as opposed to some of the 11th hour switches that the chief has engaged in over the years. And that, you know, he felt that some of his other colleagues were engaging in to, you know, either steady the court in these political times or to appear more moderate. Uh, you know, he was not going to, he was not going to pull his punches at all. And I, I think that the same for Samuel Alito for most of the cases too. I think I was really taken by how you illustrated this kind of arc of influence that Roberts had on the court as the court began shifting with new additions. Um, and, you know, as you noted in your book, you know, really kind of reached the zenith when um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch had, had joined the court, but before Barrett um, signed on and he was kind of this critical fifth swing vote. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, he went from that kind of high point of, you know, being able to kind of help influence those like 11th hour compromise deals and what changed after Justice Ginsburg passed away in September 18, 2020. Um, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett was um, nominated and um, joined the bench. Oh, what a what a jolt that was to use one of John Roberts own words from his confirmation hearing. You know, he was really at the height of his powers in the summer of 2020 while Ruth Bader Ginsburg was alive. If you look at the October 2019 into 2020 term, there was like nothing that he lost. He he had so many wins and some of them, you know, hard fought. There was one Georgia uh, copyright case that he wrested from Clarence Thomas behind the scenes. There were all the victories he had uh, was able to achieve on the Trump documents. Remember, he he got two seven to two votes. Uh, I know from my reporting that uh, those two cases uh, initially were much closer, but he wanted uh, he wanted more unanimity, and he got it. And he he was just prevailing in case after case after case. And then we have the next term that is a bit of a transition term, I would say, Natalie, uh, October 2020 into 2021, uh, the court didn't do all that much, didn't move things too much, reinforced where he was at, frankly, on voting rights uh, in the Arizona case. 
uh, but compromised on religious liberties and comprom- and certainly didn't do anything radical on Obamacare, just left it in place for the third time. But then we see what happens to him with um, Justice Barrett on and most vividly in the Dobbs case. So I think that, you know, obviously he he's much more on the defensive. He has a weaker hand. Uh, and that that was also evident in the Dobbs abortion ruling. But I am I always want to make clear to people that this is to me, at least this is still very much a court controlled by John Roberts on so many issues. You think of racial remedies, you think of campaign finance regulation, you think of religious rights, for example, in the Coach Kennedy case and in the religious funding case that he he even wrote last session. So he's he still uh, is where most of the justices on the right wing are on, on legal issues. Obviously, it wasn't on reproductive rights, uh, in part because he might have ultimately wanted to go as far as Samuel Alito's majority opinion went, but just not yet. Just not yet. Uh, he's always been an, an opponent of abortion, but he still wanted to hear to adhere to precedent. So I think it's I think it's been a frustrating period for him. And I think he's also been very much worried about the courts standing in the public eye. But I tell everyone, you know, I I never I never count John Roberts out. I, I think that that man still is going to win most of the time. He still has his own idea of where the law should be. And, you know, look at the cases we have now. I I can't imagine that he isn't playing a strong role in uh, the voting rights case and the uh, from Alabama and the independent state legislature case from North Carolina. If it survives or doesn't survive, I think he will have a, a strong hand in, in that one. Uh, obviously, the Harvard affirmative action case is something that plays right to concerns he has had uh, since he first took government jobs in Washington, D.C. back in the 1980s when he so opposed any kind of racial remedies, whether in voting or um, college affirmative action. So I think that he's he's certainly seen his power diminish, but, and he's also been hard, but not, not only, and this is something I know you know about Natalie, not only in cases, but think of how hard it's been for him to get any kind of unanimity on anything resembling a formal ethics code that would cover the justices. So he's, I think he's struggling in, on two fronts with his colleagues, but I do think that he's, He's still winning and he's still only 68. What is he? Let's see. He was born in 55. So yeah, he just turned, he just turned 68 in January. He's young in Supreme Court terms. <laughs> right. Um, I think Justice Brett Kavanaugh is another interesting figure on this bench, someone who has kind of seen his stock risen maybe since his bruising confirmation battle um, with the addition of Justice Barrett. But he's an interesting one to me in that you know, it, it sometimes seems harder to gauge uh, where he's coming from. He often decides not to join on to the to the other uh, conservatives' opinions and maybe writes separately where he strikes kind of a more conciliatory tone. Um, you reported on a fascinating episode involving Justice Kavanaugh in the fight over the uh, Trump administration's efforts to include a citizenship question on the 2020 census. What what can you tell us about that and, and maybe what it says about Kavanaugh? Yes, I thought that was another example where he, he sort of re- revealed himself privately, but I found out about it. 
just to remind our listeners what that was about, uh, the Trump administration, uh, mostly through the efforts of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, wanted to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Now, there was a lot of political controversy over that because many people believed that asking folks about their, their citizenship could diminish the Hispanics and other and any new immigrants, you know, confidence in you know reporting truthfully on the census form. You know, it was just a, a very charged question for people and uh, immigrant immigrant rights advocates and uh, civil broad coalition of civil rights advocates really opposed this. Um, the ACLU uh, had brought one of the leading cases against the Trump administration to stop the addition of the citizenship question on the census. And um, Judge Jesse Furman up in New York had handled the trial. And as he had handled it, he realized through evidence that he had collected that uh, that Wilbur Ross and others had been greatly pressured by outside political forces, including Steve Bannon and uh, Republicans who were very much involved in trying to change voting districts, to, to do anything to strengthen the hand of white Republicans over, over Democrats, and especially Democrats uh, who might be backed by people of color. So it was, you know, it was all caught up in many, many racial and immigrant issues. And in the end, this was one of the cases where Roberts did change his vote behind the scenes, but uh, by a, a five to four majority with Roberts joining the four liberals, the court says that the way Wilbur Ross did this uh, was invalid. And they say it's got to go back. It can go back for another attempt. But as, as you probably remember, the Trump administration was saying time was of the essence because the census forms were being printed almost in the next moment. So it turned out that the, the census form stayed the same without the citizenship question. That was kind of the main event. But as a side, the dissenting justices, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh, really took aim at Judge Furman, saying that Judge Furman had essentially uh, crossed the line in terms of how he had run the trial, the, the hearing, the evidence he had collected, uh, things that were outside the record they said had influenced him. And Justice Thomas had written the dissent and the three others had signed on to it. And it was a really... Uh, biting dissent against Judge Furman saying that, you know, suggesting that he was very biased against uh, Secretary Wilbur Ross and that he had imagined some conspiracy here. And that led him to think that, of course, what the Trump administration was doing was corrupt in some way. So it was a very biting dissent. And Justice Kavanaugh signed on to it and it essentially impugned the, the integrity of Judge Furman. And Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, then separately writes a note to Judge Furman that I had found out about that said, you know, I just want you to know that I really respect you. And, you know, like I didn't I didn't really mean all that and sent it to him. And I thought that was, you know, obviously that was something that, you know, I found out about. It wasn't public, but I thought it just showed the lengths to which he would go to try to appear conciliatory. But also, I thought it reflected how torn he was generally, you know, in the wake of his very contentious 2018 confirmation hearings to appear, you know, still aligned with the people who supported him so deeply when it got rough back in 2018 and he was faced with the charges from Christine Blasey Ford, you know, sort of the the, the feeling that he was going to still align himself with those supporters, but yet he 
he still was very mindful of the legal elite that he at one time felt like he was part of, um, but who certainly shunned him in 2018 and who he has tried in various ways to get back in the good graces of. It's so interesting to see how you kind of fill out on paper the personalities of these justices, kind of as you're saying about Kavanaugh here. And so much of the book is concentrated on kind of like the court and justice tussling in in between each other, but also with external forces and and these really high profile cases. But then towards the end, we see uh, you cover the leak of Dobbs decision in late May. And that's kind of like, you know, a much more internal (laughs) trauma for for the court. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what what was happening inside the court after Politico published um, that bombshell report? Boy, I'll never forget. any of that, as I'm sure all of you on this call will never forget exactly where you were. You know, as I always always say, I always remember where I was on February 13th, 2016. I'll always remember exactly what I was doing on May 2nd, uh, just of of last year when, you know, at 8.32, (laughs) the bulletin from Politico went across. In fact, coincidentally, I was on a Zoom call with with daughters (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> it was just, you know, we were still in kind of a COVID holdover practice that was kind of a fun practice. So I was on a Zoom call like this. Um, they had found out a few days earlier that this was happening. And I, I found it so curious to go back and retrace what was going on with them inside the court when they first found out. And I could see part of it because they had found out before that Monday that Politico published it they had held a memorial service for Justice John Paul Stevens and C-SPAN was there. So, you know, I can see them all. And then, of course, I followed up and talked to folks uh, who were behind the scenes about what it was like when they knew this was about to be published and their world would be turned upside down. That You know, it was shocking in every way, as I, I said that evening uh, on the air and that I've said since, to, to have such a complete draft, 98 pages, be disclosed so early in the process. It was a February 10th draft and it was, you know, everything was building toward late June when the decision would be announced. And I think it, I think it just rattled them top to bottom. First of all, that that such a disclosure would happen and that it would be revealed to all where they were. And you have to remember that, you know, they were doing something quite radical in that decision because they had taken the case based on that one, the one question presented was on the viability standard and whether the Mississippi ban at 15 weeks violated Roe's uh, prohibition on any kind of uh, abortion ban before uh, the fetus would be viable. So, you know, they had taken it on a, a, a very important consequential question, but still a limited one that didn't sweep in all of Roe. So, you know, we immediately saw that they were going to, they wanted to really end Roe completely and all of abortion rights. But then remember how people reacted. People ran down to the court. Protesters went to the court immediately. All these protests began at the homes of, of several justices. It was so disconcerting to them. And then, you know, the very next day on uh, May 3rd, the chief comes out and says, we're going to get to the bottom of this, that I'm designating the, 
The marshal of the court to have this investigation. And from the start, so many people inside thought, how is this going to work? You know, will she really have the power? And so you had simultaneously them in angst over this ruling. And remember, you had four justices not wanting the ruling, including the chief. The chief, again, he is against abortion rights, but he didn't want the majority to go that far. And then you have the three liberals who are banding together to write a, a joint dissent, you know, just as Breyer, Sotomayor, and, and Kagan doing that. So on the substance, you had just a lot of turmoil. And then you have the question of who has betrayed them or, you know, how many people have betrayed them. You know, that document might have changed hands after it left the court. And, you know, how did it all happen? And could it happen in another case? So there was just so much going on inside. And I had reported early on, I had found out before the leak report was, um, the investigation report was made public just in this calendar year. I had found out last summer that they had already, you know, they had had law clerks sign affidavits, uh, you know, attesting to any role or frankly saying, no, they weren't involved in the leak. Uh, they had confiscated cell phone data. I, I knew they had uh, taken laptops and other uh, electronic devices from the full-time staff. So I had been in touch with people who were telling me what was happening. So I was able to get some information, but I have to say, you know, once you have something as large as a leak of that kind of a case, it it did make my job a little bit harder. <laughs> Even though I had nothing to do with that leak, um, I did make my job a, a little bit harder. And and by the, obviously the, the, the draft turns out to be almost a carbon copy of the final uh, decision that comes out later in the term. And by by the time the dust is settled on the 2021 term, the court has overruled Roe v. Wade. It has uh, expanded the Second Amendment in the Bruin decision. It has struck down uh, kind of significant potential EPA regulations and greenhouse gases when it comes to power plants. And you write that in your book, the court had no middle, no center to hold. And and here we are, you know, in the midst of the the following term, and it seems like it's shaping up to be another banner year for the court's conservative majority. You got affirmative action in college admissions on the chopping block, a number of big cases involving environmental rules, voting rights, LGBT rights, et cetera. So how do you think the court's liberal minority are planning to push back against this drive to the right, as you kind of describe it in your in the title of your book? The three justices who comprise the left wing really have so few options. Um, you probably noticed at the beginning of the book, I, I quote uh, the dissenting justices from Dobbs, where they say, no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. And I also end the book with a variation on that statement. And I think that what you're going to see is more declarations like that from the, from the left. They are not going to be able to get the compromise they want just by virtue of the sheer numbers. It's stunning how the supermajority is so different from just a five justice conservative majority. They've got a cushion. You know, if 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 Justice Gorsuch wants to break off on certain criminal cases or Indian rights cases, uh, the chief is going to be with the justices on the right. If the chief moves to the left on something, there's pretty sure that, uh, you know, in most cases, he'll be the only one. Uh, he can't bring over, he might be able to bring over Justice Kavanaugh on a few things, but obviously not as much as he could ever, you know, that Justice Kennedy would have ever moved left. Justice 
Kennedy and Justice Kavanaugh are very, very different. And um, and there's really uh, a, a stark contrast between the late Justice Ginsburg and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, of course. So I think these liberal justices are faced with a court that is not going to change much. You know, nobody nobody wishes anybody ill, and it's the conservatives who are the youngest ones. Although Justice Clarence Thomas is, uh, he was born in 1948, so I think he's he's 74 now. But he's, you know, he's as far as we can tell, he's in good health. And you know, the last justices who left the bench were in their 80s. John Paul Stevens was uh, 90, so I don't anticipate that he would leave anytime soon, especially under a, a Democratic administration. So I think the liberal justices have to just think about how they might lay down markers for the future, and the future is far in the future, or try to call more public attention to issues, as as they often do with their comments from the bench during oral arguments or in speeches. You know, you had this summer um, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, to varying degrees, you know, talking about the dissension behind the scenes. And then you also have newest Justice Jackson, who probably was just plain enthusiastic about being on the Supreme Court and uh, trying to just begin to make her mark. But, you know, given how young she is in her early 50s, she probably can look forward to a different court down the road, whereas really Justices Kagan and Sotomayor cannot look forward to a different court. This is this is the court of their life. Joan Piskupic is the author of Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Joan, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your incredible insights into this Supreme Court. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jimmy. And thanks, Natalie, too. Well, that was a wonderful conversation. Uh, Jimmy, I think that does it for us today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.